Before we get started, I just want to let you know that this episode is a bit different than the usual. Normally, this podcast is me all by my lonesome, but in this episode, I have my first ever guest. I've recently been reading through a book called Young Washington by Peter Stark, and recently, I actually had the opportunity to interview Peter over Skype. So while this episode's format and audio quality are a little different than what you might be used to, I think you'll love the conversation we had about the factors that shaped a man that would eventually shape a nation. Without further ado, here's my interview with author Peter Stark. Today on Historium, we have Peter Stark, uh, a history um, author. I'm really excited to have him on the program. Um, How are you doing today, Peter? All right, just fine, Jake. Fun to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm really excited. Um, So when I first heard about uh, your work, it was um, Astoria, um, a book that came out, I believe, in 2014. Um, And I was really interested, um, didn't have the chance to read it. um, But then Young Washington came out in uh, this year. um, And I actually got my hands on a copy and about halfway through and I'm really, really enjoying it. So I can't wait to dig into that. But my first question to you is, have you always been a history buff? Well, yes and no. In a strange way, um, I never thought of myself as a history buff until well into middle age, and and then I and then I started writing a lot more about history. Mm-hmm. Um, and what had happened was I I was always an adventurer, you know, an adventurous guy, and came from a very outdoorsy family and did a lot of adventurous things, um, you know, canoeing and skiing and things in the mountains and traveling all over the place. Um, when I was, when I was younger, you know, backpacking all over the place. Um, and then, then I started writing about doing, you know, crazy adventurous stuff like, uh, you know, kayaking down an unpaddled river in Africa, you know, dealing with the hippos and the crocs and the waterfalls and black mambas and all that sort of thing. And and going to northern Greenland and hanging out with the Inuit hunters up there is what they went out on the sea ice with their kayaks and their harpoons and their and their dog sleds. And then after a while, um, as you know, I got married and had children and um, got a little older. I said, well, instead of I'm not sure I can keep on writing about myself doing the crazy stuff because I could get killed doing this. And, uh, and, I, and I'm getting kind of old for it, and I have a family to think about, too. So then I started writing more about other adventurers and explorers doing the crazy stuff, historical figures. And um, initially, I wrote uh, uh, a book about, in fact, this river trip I was describing in uh, down an un, unpaddled river in, in Mozambique, in northern Mozambique. I wrote a, a book about that, and I wove in a lot of stories about African explorers, early African explorers, and that was so much fun, and it really, it really uh, got me going on on uh, the writing of history. And then the curious thing was that, you know, I realized I I was absolutely steeped in history since you know since infancy. My father was a big history buff, and he. He loved, uh, we, we grew up, I grew up in Wisconsin and he loved, um, you know, the history of the early settlers in Wisconsin in the voyageurs, the French Canadian voyageurs in the Indian tribes who were there. And so I really grew up steeped in, in an atmosphere of history. And then it was 
in my middle age, I really picked up on that thread and ran with it. Mm, I think there is this this link between adventure and history, because in the modern world, especially in first world countries, that sense of adventure has to be almost sought out. Um, you aren't going to have it sprung upon you. Um, so what do you uh, do you see a strong link between um, adventure stories and and historical tales um, because they had to deal with survival and um, adventure more often? Oh yeah, I, that's a that's a really good point you're raising, and I think most definitely that that what we think of as history now, what we look back on as notable events, are often events about people doing things for the first time. Mm -hmm. They're doing breakthrough things. They're doing kind of cutting edge things. They're uh, they're on the frontier of of one of of human knowledge or or warfare or exploration there uh there's so much of our history that revolves around um stepping into the unknown in in many ways and mm -hmm. my particular love is the people who step into it in an actual physical way and i'm i'm very curious about that geographical topographical psychological there's always a psychological and emotional component to stepping in stepping into the unknown so yes i think there's a a, a huge link between history and adventure yeah i found um in telling stories on historium um that i try to build you know an empathy for the characters who are often on the frontier or on like like you said like the cutting edge of of a new technology or a new um era or a new geographical location um and i find it sometimes hard to put the audience in the shoes of these explorers or cartographers because everything that that is already explored nowadays and so they see this and they go oh they were just sailing down a river like that's so easy today right like it, it's right. not um exactly. scary yeah. and new it's not scary <laughs> but back but then horrifying absolutely horrifying so i love trying to convey that kind of the the novel um stuff that they that these explorers or that any anyone um was experiencing back then because it's just so different compared to the leisurely ease that we have to travel or adventure today and and that's really a lot of what i try to bring to the to the stories i tell the books i write Mm -hmm. um, including Astoria, as you mentioned in an earlier book, and, and, and this most recent one, Young Washington, is to really do exactly that. Put the reader in the shoes of the person who is in that situation and make that as vivid and as um, uh, alive as possible. And I'm, I'm not a fiction writer. I, I mean, I, the, the, uh, I think you mentioned a, a that I wrote novels at the beginning of the program, but no, I don't write novels. I write very carefully documented uh, works of history, but mm -hmm. in that uh, very careful documentation, I try to bring as much alive as I can. And in the case of this uh, of young Washington, I know personally what it feels like to paddle a canoe down a half frozen river. Oh, uh, I know yeah. what it feels like to break through the ice of a lake. I know what it feels like to to um, travel through a forest, a frozen forest, on a snowy winter night when you're navigating by moonlight or by stars. And these are all things that, that young Washington faced. You know these extraordinary mm -hmm. adventures, and we have just no conception, most people, of what <laughs> yeah. of what it's like. And 
So that's what I really struggle to do. And I, I, I like to think I can convey that sense to the reader. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am about a third of the way through Young Washington, and I, I can definitely see that, that there is a, a level of knowledge that is not um, – that is not that you didn't find in a book that you had to get. Your no, it wasn't found in a book. <laughs> yeah, that you could use. Dirty and bloody and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a question I often get about um, finding these stories uh, is how do you go about choosing potential topics to to write about? Um, or do you, you we mentioned the link between adventure and history? Um, yeah, how do you go about choosing potential uh, topics to write about? Well, a, a lot of times it's really serendipitous that one topic leads to another. Uh-huh. And so in the in the case of the last few books I've written, including a story in young Washington, they actually grew out of a an earlier book um, that i I wrote in the Oh, I, I think I started researching it in 2005 or 2006, and it was called The Last Empty Places, and I, I call it my Blank Spots book. And I, what I wanted to do was profile the, the emptiest regions of the United States, of the lower, of the lower 48 states. Huh. And so I contacted a, a satellite geographer friend of mine, and I said, well, you know, how should I go about this? And he said, oh, well, get a you know, whatever was a Landsat 7 NASA photograph of the United States at night, high resolution, and then look where the lights are and look where they're not. And then you go to where they're not. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up going into four blank spots, dark spots, uh, two in the east and two in the west. And the the one in the west, one of the ones in the west I chose was... uh, uh, eastern, southeastern Oregon, which if anybody who's been out there knows it is really blank. I mean, really unpopulated, beautiful, huh. incredible experience, but really unpopulated. And while I was out there, I, you know, I, I, uh, one long, lonely drive down a road as it was turning dark, you know, one May night, I thought, where am I going to spend the night? And I ended up coming to this little tiny town called John Day, Oregon. And I, you know, spent the night in a motel. And then the next Day, I said, well, the next morning I said, well, John Day, that's a strange name for a town. So I did a little research and I found that John Day was this guy who had been on this Astoria expedition. Mm. He was one of these explorers and he had been, you know, he'd, he'd almost died from malaria. He'd poisoned himself by eating death camas instead of the right kind of camas that the Indians were <laughs> eating. He was, you know, stripped naked by the Indians and sent out into the wilderness on his own. He was left for dead by his own guys because he was starving and weak. He was helped by Indians in a lot of cases, but he went through this incredible endurance run. And it was just one guy and one guy out of 140 on this expedition. And there were many stories like that from this expedition. And I said, wow, that might make a cool, you know, cool thing to look into an interesting book. And it was sort Uh of this unknown period of American history when John Jacob Astor was trying to establish the first American colony on the West Coast. This is right after Lewis and Clark went out there mm-hmm. and had, he had the help of Thomas Jefferson. And he was trying to establish, establish a sort of trans-Pacific global trade empire and, and even a separate country. And that's why he sent all these guys out there. And, you know, Lewis and Clark ended, you know, for, uh, heroically for the whole party. And, uh, this one ended disastrously for everybody. About 70 out of 140 died in various final. So it was a, a great 
story and a significant part of American history that has been you know, largely overlooked. And likewise with the, the Young Washington book, um, another one of those blank spots, the dark spaces in the East was, uh, was Western Pennsylvania. And so I was mm. hiking around Western Pennsylvania in 2006 and it's very, you know, surprisingly rugged and mountainous and wildernessy, a good part of it. But I kept, you know, stumbling across these stories about a young George Washington out there, you know, in his early 20s. And he was this guy, a completely different Washington than the one I'd ever heard about. But he was this guy who's he's needy, he's ambitious, he's whiny, he's petulant. <laughs> he's, he's screwing up in many ways, including inadvertently setting off the French and Indian War. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, this is a whole different Washington. So that's what got me engaged in this story. Yeah. yeah. And, and in reading it, I think my favorite part is, is seeing Washington's letters um, and just how he sounds is just so different than our, you know, kind of noble, heroic perception um, of this perfect paragon of a man. Um, that juxtaposition is just so fascinating. Um, so that kind of leads into my next question. Um, what led you want to write about such a you know, the chief amongst the um, pantheon of kind of American saints. Um, he's such a an important, beloved figure um, in American history. Uh, did you approach George Washington with a certain um, reverence that you might not have approached other subjects with? Um, no, I didn't. Uh, but I approached <laughs> him with a certain amount of intimidation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and um, that... I think it was it was precisely because he's such a revered figure and such an iconic figure mm -hmm. that this story attracted me, this side of him that is just really so widely unknown to the general American public about what a kind of struggling mess of a guy he was as mm -hmm. a young man. And, um, you know, as, as you probably know, he didn't become commander of chief of the of the continental army until he was 43 years old and you know we we have this image that he was this this you know this uh, kind of this um guy who you know this great leader who sprang out of the ether you know yeah. fully formed <laughs> sort of immaculately conceived this like man god <laughs> who arrives on the scene and he leads our nation through its birth and its early years but that was, you know, beginning at age 43. And so before that, he'd had a, a very different career. I mean, before he was a great leader, he was really not a great leader. Mm -hmm. And so he had this long and difficult learning curve. And especially in his early 20s, he, he really struggled. He, he failed at times, but, but he learned, you know, he learned from his mistakes. And that's where I find George Washington tr truly uh, inspirational is that that he learned and it's and he but he had all these flaws and failures and weaknesses and that that George Washington really to me is a more instructive and inspiring and vulnerable and more human access and accessible Washington than the one we know. So that's what inspired me to, to take on the story. But it was, you know, as you say, there's a certain amount of reverence involved. And mm -hmm. And, and, and I, and I did have some, certainly I had plenty of apprehensions about how it might be received or just simply getting going and writing the story. It was so mm -hmm. interesting thing to take on. And, and, and partly I had this awareness that there are hundreds, I'm sure thousands of, of Washington scholars out there in the world. I mean, people who do this study George Washington professionally. 
And mm-hmm. so here I'm this guy. I, I know no more about when I started the story, no more about George Washington than the, you know, than the average American. Um, in the course of it, I learned a great deal more. I mean, of course, I learned way, way, way more. I, I, mm-hmm. uh, I you know, this book focuses on uh, basically the years between uh, when he's 21 to 26, five years of his life. And I, I realized not so long ago, I, I spent four years researching and writing those five years of his life. And so we're almost on an equal par when it comes to time invested in that period. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so that's what really helped me a lot with the, that kind of intimidation factor, because I just immersed myself in, in those hundreds and hundreds of letters of his and, and yeah. diaries and journals and all, you know, every, going to the places where he traveled, canoeing the rivers, you know, on and on and on. And so I really felt I started to get to know this guy in this period of his life, in this context. And I could read a letter and, and it would, you know, when I first read it, it wouldn't make, when I first started this research, it wouldn't make, you know, it would make sense, even though he's a very awkward writer, but I wouldn't <laughs> kind of understand the emotional underpinnings of it. And after a year or two, I really started to understand, oh, this is where he's coming from in this letter and it made it so much more illuminating and it also made that intimidation factor uh, kind of shrink away because I said, you know, I really feel I know this guy as, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't wanna say as well as anybody, but I, I, I'll, you know, I'll put my knowledge right up there with, with just about anybody um, of this period of his life. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a really important period of his life that that the American public know about. You know, we talk about a crisis of leadership that we face today, you know, in our country and all around the world. And this guy was a mess and <laughs> figured it out. <laughs> and so it's possible, you know? Yeah. He started from he started from a very low point and he achieved in a, an amazing amount. And I think that's where I really find him it's more inspirational now than I did when I started this because I see where he started and I see how far he took it and really what a great leader he became, but it was not an easy path to get there. Yeah. That growth is really cool. I think like you said, um, it is almost this, uh, you said not really reverence, but intimidation because of, you know, everyone knows who George Washington is. Like he's, he's this towering figure in American history. Um, and seeing some of the the letters and, and you know, like you said, he's an awkward writer. Um, it, it it is very strange and it kind of shakes you. You're like, whoa, like this this guy is human. Um, and I think that's a crucial part of history um that I I definitely seek out to do in my podcast is to humanize these figures that have become uh almost too uh popular to really seem human anymore. Um, and, and I really think, uh, reading, you know, like I said, the first third of this book, I'm really seeing the human side of Washington, like you said, just a mess. And it's so weird to think about him, him coming so, so far. Um, and so, and I think that's a great mission to take on, you know, in, in your podcast is what you're doing is to, is to, you know, really bring life and, and, and all the human flaw and all the human strength and all the human passion and emotion to these historical figures mm-hmm. that are, are portraits and statues to us. Yeah. I, um, I heard a story, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, it was about George Washington's slave Hercules. Have you heard this story? Yeah. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know the story. Um, I, I will say that 
that, you know, as I said, my expertise is in his early 20s, in George's early 20s. So this is the 1750s. And uh, I, I think the story you're talking about, it, it happened some decades Way later. later. So, I, so, I, so I'm, I'm aware of it. I don't, you know, I don't know great details about yeah. it. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I um I heard this story, and so basically George Washington has his his head cook at Mount Vernon. Um, his name is Hercules, and he's just this amazing cook that several other um, founding fathers actually reference, like that his cooking is just so good. Um, and Hercules one day just runs away, um, and George Washington was just so mad, and there were letters of him like moving heaven and earth to try to find Hercules who ran away. And I remember reading that story and it just it hit me in such a weird way um, because it was like it didn't compute with my heroic idealism of George Washington. It, it made me question kind of everything I had learned and maybe my ideal of Washington is is kind of overcoming the truth of what who he was as a man. Um, so turning that back into your book, have you encountered any resistance um, to the idea of Washington being so human and having so many flaws? Because here in the United States, especially, people really cling to their idealism and exceptionalism of their heroes. Um, did you Have you dealt with any resistance to the book or people thinking that maybe you're taking Washington down a peg or something like that? Well, that, that's a really interesting question. And, and I, you know, I certainly expected to, <laughs> to uh -huh. run into a lot of resistance. And and I was sort of you know a little bit armored for it, but surprisingly not. And I mean, and this and I've I've spoken to a lot of audiences. I've just been on a, a more than a month of touring up and down the East Coast, <laughs> speaking about uh, the, about George young George Washington in this and in this book and reading passages from it and telling the story, and including at Mount Vernon. I mean, you know, the epicenter. And, oh, wow. you know, it's a, you know, a full auditorium at Mount Vernon. And I, there are a lot of people there who know a lot about George Washington. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so I was, I was sort of braced for that. Um, when I was up there at the podium at, at Mount Vernon, and this was the first, actually the first speaking gig of this whole tour. This was in October. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, room, room full of people. I don't know. I think there were close to 300 people there. And I was up at the podium and, and I looked out and I thought, wow, you know, and here I am. This is George Washington's house. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm up here. Just, I'm this guy, you know, he's kind of wandering off the street. And I'm going to really tell some stories about this guy. And and I said to the audience, well, you know, at the at the risk of speaking blasphemy and, you know, of George Washington in his own house, and at the risk of <laughs> struck down by a bolt of lightning, um, let me t let me start with this. And so this is the first sentence I read. I, you know, I said this is not the George Washington of the cherry tree bedtime story. I said <laughs> this Washington that I'm talking about, this young Washington is ambitious, temperamental, vain, thin-skinned, petulant, awkward demanding, stubborn, annoying, hasty, and passionate. Oh. This Washington has not yet learned to cultivate his image or contain his emotions. Here, instead, is a raw young man struggling toward maturity and in love with a close friend's wife. This is the Washington of emotional neediness, personal ambition, and mistakes, many mistakes. 
So that's how I started my oh, talk. About how did they react? That, <laughs> well, how did it was, it, react? <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was really interesting. And then I, you know, I went from there and I, I, you know, I kind of told the whole story, the arc of this period of his life. And then we had questions and answers. And so I was ready, you know, kind of braced for just what you were talking about, that people would be <laughs> upset that I was, you know, trying to denigrate our founding father. But what I found at that talk at Mount Vernon and, and in all these other talks I've given, um, including to other historians of this period, is that people are really curious about him at this at this stage. They 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 want to know more about him, and they 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 want to know they want to hear what I know about him or what I've learned about him that they might not know. So it's really I didn't run into to resistance to the idea of of uh, you know this image that I was. Um, discussing, I mean, this, 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 or this actuality of this young Washington, they didn't, um, I didn't run into so much resistance to it as I ran into curiosity about it. Huh. So that was a revelation to me. Oh, that's, that's really good. That, that's really good to hear. Um, because especially I think in, um, maybe past eras, um, or maybe, maybe that's wrong too, but just, I don't know, this ideal of, of George Washington and the cherry tree and can't, you know, can never tell a lie. All that stuff has been ingrained in like the American mythos that, um, you know, I'm really glad to hear that people are have meet this this true, real, deep look into Washington's past with a curiosity. Um, that that's really exciting. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it was encouraging to me to just for the very reason that you're saying is that I expected to run into this kind of resistance or some ironclad image that was out there, but but the. The, the sort of the curiosity and openness to this notion was really interesting and, yeah. and, and encouraging. That's, that's really cool. That's really encouraging. I like that. Um, so what is one thing, maybe one story or maybe a few stories about young George Washington that, that you feel like uh, most people don't know, that, that surprised people the most when they hear about um, George Washington's past? I, oh, I have so many of those stories. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear them. Um, I mean, there's there there are significant ones, significant ones, and then there are kind of funny asides. I mean, like one of the funny asides is that he was a real clothes horse from the time he was a young man, and he had a you know he had a weakness for silver lace. He was always <laughs> buying silver lace when he went to to a, a, a town. Oh wow! And, and almost as soon as he got a new appointment for, for as a new position, a new officer's position, just about the first thing he did was sit down and design his own uniform. <laughs> With a, with a lot of you know star you know bangles and shiny things on it. Oh man, so he was he was very image conscious from a very young age, um, and and that's a surprising thing I guess in a, in a larger context is that that how aware he was of his his self image and his image in the world starting really young in his early twenties, hmm. uh, and and how he was always trying to present. The kind of the best and noblest face of this individual to the world, and and, and shape that person, and um, and effective at, at at doing that, effective at shaping that that image, um, and at the same time, another thing that just is uh, I find extraordinary is how ambitious he was, starting from a really young age, hmm. and um, and it's really notable from the time he's about sixteen years on um, that that his ambition to first. Um, to climb up in the Virginia aristocracy and um, 
and also in the in the military. And one way to climb up in the aristocracy was to climb up in the military, mm -hmm. uh, in the British military. Uh, of course, this is all colonial America, you know, pre pre U.S. And so he tried very hard to get a British Royal Army commission, an officer's commission in the British Royal Army as a young man. And he only had a, uh, a commission from the colonial governor of Virginia. He had a, a colonial commission. And royal officer commission was, was way higher. And Washington got into several real disputes with, with royal army officers who were of lower or equal rank with him. And he thought he should be ranked higher, but he wasn't because he was a colonial officer. He ended up quitting or threatening to quit at least seven times during this <laughs> from the from the from the Virginia military because he was not appreciated enough. And it was over. He was not, you know, some other officer was ranked higher than he was. It was a sort of jealousy thing or it was about pay. He wasn't being paid enough that he was not being appreciated enough. So it was this real, wow. um, uh, you know, kind of neediness is sort of petulant. You're not, you know, you're not appreciating me enough. Uh, yeah. It's uh, a surprising thing when you really delve into it. Oh, wow. That, that is just so weird to think that those two things you mentioned, um, his vanity and his, um, his, his kind of neediness, um, it's, it's very strange to hear that because when you think of George Washington, I think when most um, Americans think of George Washington, they think of, you know, the man who could have been king and like his humility. Um, and and this, you know, in his youth is just it's showing that it is much more complicated than that. Um, and that he did care about, yeah, he did care yep. about those. Humility things. was not the first thing that George Washington was known for. <laughs> his youth. I mean, it was just the opposite. It was really yeah. more arrogance. And I, you know, I can give you a little, you know, a little bit of the of how that all unfolded. And there were some key moments when I think um, that he really started making the shift from that that very self-centered young man, ambitious, mm -hmm. self-centered young man, to the the leader that we have in our national consciousness, this selfless leader who did mm -hmm. step down. I mean, amazingly stepped down. Um, and that that he, you know, as I was saying, he, you know, he was very ambitious from uh, from a young man. His his family was from of a, a a sort of a middling level of the Virginia colonial tobacco planter hierarchy. You know, the aristocracy. They weren't aristocracy. They were more, as I say, middling. They, you know, they they were tobacco planters and they had slaves and servants, but they didn't have the great house and the marble hallways and the thousands of acres and the hundreds of slaves. They, um, you know, they lived much more modestly, almost like farmers. And, um, but then, and then George's father died when George was 11. And George's father gave most of the family land to George's older half-brothers from mm -hmm. earlier marriage. And so George ended up with very little land and basically um, no way to make a living. He didn't have enough plantation lands to, uh, to make a living. And his older half-brothers had received a private schooling education in England, and so they were quite polished and educated. But uh, George's father had died before George got sent off to England. So George was ended up with very little education, very little formal education, you know, maybe seventh or eighth grade at best. Hmm. And so he's in his teens, and he's needing a way to make a, a way in the world. And he takes up surveying using his father's old instruments. And he goes out to the frontier. He's, he, he gets connected with a big um, uh, British um, 
uh, aristocratic British family who owns five million acres of, of Virginia land. Mm-hmm. And he surveys some of their frontiers lands and he learns to survey. And he, he starts surveying on his own, goes, uh, makes some pretty good living by his late teens, buying his own lands. And then he, he says he decides he wants to climb still higher in the aristocracy, the Virginia aristocracy. So he signs up for like a part-time military officer's job in the, in the Virginia military. And just at that time, the Virginia uh, colonial governor of Virginia, uh, Governor Dinwiddie, a Scottish merchant, 60-year-old, uh, now like a colonial bureaucrat, um, starts hearing these stories about French coming down from Canada and building forts way out in the Ohio wilderness, you know, over the Appalachian Mountains and way out in this massive wilderness. And Virginia thinks it owns that land out there. And now the French are building forts out there because the French think they claim that land. Mm -hmm. And so Governor Dinwiddie sends young George Washington over the mountains in winter to deliver a message to the French commandant way back in the wilderness. And um, George, you know, struggles over the mountains. He's riding horses. He has a guide. He has some servants. They get slammed by snowstorms. They get way out there. Um, to the wilderness and um, the French, there's a French commandant at a fort back there who receives an elderly gentleman who receives them very graciously with, with, um, you know, the formal dinner and the best meats and the wines imported from France by canoe from Montreal and, you know, candlelight. Oh, wow. There, there is no other light than candlelight, but anyway, it's a whole kind of formal dinner. And George hands over this message from the governor of Virginia and the message basically says, um, you know, these lands belong to King George III, stay out. And the governor takes the message into another room and he reads it and he comes back a while later and he, you know, having written a response and gives it to George and sends George on his way. And George goes through this another incredible endurance run through the wilderness and he, he, uh, he doesn't pay attention to his wilderness guide and says, oh, let's leave our horses behind because they're too slow and take a shortcut through the wood <laughs> <laughs> in the, these snowy winter woods. And they almost oh, man. doing that and they think they're being chased by Indians and they end up having to build a raft across a half frozen river. And George gets thrown off the raft into this half frozen river, comes really close to dying, almost the end of our founding father, but eventually makes it wow. back, delivers the message to Governor Dinwiddie. And and the French commandant's message basically says, well, you know, our empires have been at war for a very long time in Europe, meaning like 700 years. And we're now enjoying a brief period of peace. And I would very much like to maintain that peace. But as to your request that I leave, I don't think so. And (laughs) things unfold from there. (laughs) So the governor gets really angry. George gets really angry. You know, George is 21 years old. And the governor sends, yeah, still 21, 21 years old. This is the winter of uh, 1753, 1754. This is January of 1754. And the governor immediately sends George back into the wilderness at the head of a smaller military expedition, small military expedition, essentially telling the French in firmer terms to leave. And Governor Dinwiddie gives two instructions to George. Don't be the aggressor and take caution. And George, in his ambition, does just the opposite. (laughs) And he ends up ambushing a party, a small party of French 
were having breakfast in a, in a glen, in a canyon, and ends up killing most of them, even though they're, they say that they're a diplomatic party trying to deliver a message to Governor Dinwiddie. The Indians with George end up um, you know, killing the, the uh, French commanding officer by splitting open his head with a tomahawk, pulling out his brain, washing his brains through, their, through the, the Indian chief's fa- fingers, and, um, you know, and then scalping the rest of the French wounded and dead. And George takes the, the few survivors prisoner. And, you know, you'd think, well, wow, this did not go according to plan. You know, you'd think that a, a reasonable commander, a young commander would think that this did not go according to plan. Better pause and, you know, figure out what to do next. And, you know, maybe consult with my superiors. Well, George did not do that. He just kind of went marching straight ahead. And um, the result was the French unleashed this mass of French soldiers and Indian warriors on George. And he and his men, by this time, several hundred of them ended up getting slaughtered, Uh, had to surrender. Uh, George survived, but a lot of his comrades didn't. It was an awful, awful battle called the Battle of Fort Necessity. And um, it unfolded in, 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 in a kind of a swampy field and he built a little claptrap fort and his men were, you know, just their descriptions of them, eyewitness of the men, you know, lying dead in these trenches that are half full, filled with blood and mud and, mm-hmm. and, and it's raining and finally Washington surrenders. And that essentially is the start of the French and Indian War. But I also think it was moments like that that began to teach him humility. I mean, to see... To, you know, kind of to move beyond his self su- selfishness, you know, when he sees his comrades at age, you know, he's 20 now, he's 22 years old, but seeing his comrades, you know, they're the same age, you know, he's been with them for some months by this point, and mm-hmm. they're lying in these muddy, bloody trenches dead, and he realizes that he led them into this situation, and they're dying, and he ends up starting to build this empathy towards his men. From, from moments like this, these traumatic moments. And eventually he, he builds, starts building empathy towards those around him, towards the frontier settlers that he's eventually charged with protecting uh, during the French and Indian War, the, the settlers on the Virginia frontier, and mm-hmm. who are pleading with him to help, to help them, pleading with him to stop them from being slaughtered by the Indians. And George can't do anything to stop it, he's helpless. And so those are the, in my mind, some of the real turning points in, in bringing him out of this very self, uh, this very selfish, self-centered ambition towards, towards thinking of a, of a, of a much greater, um, uh, a much greater mission for himself and a greater good. Oh, that is so interesting like, to see that, that character development. Um, and you mentioned earlier that a lot of people think of George Washington as like summoned out of the ether. Um, but it's so much more compelling to hear his origin, to hear all of the trials and tribulations he had to go through to become the figure that we, we think of now. Um, because, Oh, it just imagine those scenarios um, that would change any man. Um, and just to see the growth from that. Um, oh, just, just, Super compelling. It is. And it's, it, you know, it is amazing what he went through at that age. You know, the, the, 
it was hard, 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 tough stuff that he went through. I mean, physically yeah. hard, emotionally hard. Um, and he, you know, and he, it's amazing. He got through it. And I mean, it's amazing. He did die numerous ways before, you know, <laughs> way, way before he became commander in chief or president. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but that he'd seen some stuff by the time he, you know, showed up on the real national scene and at the age of 43, he'd really been through a lot, um, in, in this early going, especially. And he'd, you know, as I say, he, he failed a lot. I mean, out of his, the, I think four, uh, you know, actual, uh, engagements with, with enemy fire that, the the first one was that that slaughter that I I mean the 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 killing of the uh, the ambush of the of the dip, French diplomatic party and the axing open of the ensign Jumonville's head. The second one mm-hmm. was the the surrender of Fort Necessity, um, which was a terrible thing and you know a huge humiliation for the British Empire. The third was when Washington uh, he'd he'd retired one of the many times he'd quit. Um, going back to Mount Vernon, um, heard that there was a huge British, you know, redcoat expedition going into the wilderness to capture the French fort way back in there. And he joined up with it as a kind of aid, unpaid aide de camp to General Braddock, the guy who was leading it. And they got way back in there almost to the fort and they got ambushed by, you know, about a thousand Indian warriors and French soldiers. And it was a complete rout of the British Empire right there. George managed to survive that um, four bullet holes through his coat. Oh. And, you know, another, another one of those turning moments where he afterwards, he said, the only way I can think of how I survived was because Providence was was looking out for me. And I think he began to see in that moment that that, you know, maybe Providence uh, in his mind was was saving him for some larger role because he'd survived this terrible, terrible. Huh. And oh, then the fourth, the fourth battle that he'd had was not even a battle. It was a, another terrible incident of friendly fire between um, his soldiers and other soldiers of the Virginia regiment in, the, in a misty forest um, at, at twilight. And, and many guys died and were wounded. And that was his fourth engagement of, of this whole early period of his life. And those were the four, you know, actual... Uh, incidences of fire, you know, of, of, of battle that he was in, and each one was terrible in its own way. So then he, you know, his next his next combat was the Revolutionary War. After that, fifteen or twenty years later. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it, it, it's really cool to see how these things could could shape some of his decision making later on. Um, and just, um, I think it was in the final part of the introduction to Young Washington was. Uh, Young Washington offers new insights into the dramatic years that shaped the man who shaped a nation. Um, and I really like um, getting kind of Washington's origin story and piecing together like his thought process um, because of what he experienced at such a young age and all the tragedy and warfare and just survival um, that he had to go through. Oh, it's just it's incredible. And one of the things that I, I you know, when I've been giving talks about this that I, I really like to bring up, and I think it's really important to bring up um, at, the, at the end, because I, you know, I, as the, the, the book, Young Washington, does recount all these youthful exploits when he's in his early 20s and these disasters and this, his emotional neediness and everything else, um, you know, not flattering light, most of it. 
And then he, he finally leaves the wilderness at age 26. The, the French and Indian War, or this phase of it that's in the Ohio wilderness ends. The, the French are pried out finally. And Washington, as soon as that happens, just quits. He quits the Virginia Regiment. I mean, literally within a few weeks and, and, and within a week after, the, after they pry the French out, he rides out of the wilderness and over the mountains and he goes back to Tidewater, back to the plantations. And within a month, he marries um, Martha Custis, who is the wealthiest widow in Virginia with 17,000 acres of land. There's a long story that I tell about how the Washington men um, over many generations, going back to England in the 1500s, had a had a uh, a tendency to marry wealthy <laughs> widows, <laughs> and, and which would launch them to the top of near the top of the social heap. But then they'd have yeah. like eight kids, and then they drop back down. All the wealth would would disperse. But anyway, so Washington gets out of the wilderness. He he marries Martha Custis, the wealthiest widow in Virginia, with 17,000 acres of land and many, many, many slaves. And he, um, which are then a form of wealth, which is so shocking for us to consider now. Mm -hmm. And then he, uh, he rises way up in the Virginia aristocracy simply by marrying Martha Custis. He's now, you know, he's now made it. He's arrived. And it's at that point where I really figure, I, I really, my, my feeling about it is that that became a turning point over many years, of course, but that Martha really was the person who settled him down. Uh. You know, he, she was the one who gave him emotional stability that he did not have before. And, you know, he'd come from, he didn't have a father, his older brother whom he'd revered, Lawrence had died um, also young uh, when George was in his teens. He was estranged from his mother, basically. He didn't really have anybody saying, you know, George, you know, this is where you are in the world. This is your place in the world mm -hmm. um, as he was growing up. And it was Martha, I think, who finally gave him that in starting when he was age 26. And uh, Martha who said, you know, George, just, you know, it's OK. It's OK. Chill out. You don't have to try so hard. And and really allowed him to kind of find his feet in the world. Oh, so I, I give that. her enormous credit. Yeah. Yeah. I find Martha Washington to be a fascinating character as well as really any first lady i feel like first ladies have um such a a huge and like under often underrated impact on history and uh yeah i i really martha being the first one she really has a an interesting backstory as well yeah she um, does she does it's too bad she burned all their correspondence i know that i was just going to mention that 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 tragedy of um the the letters but there we still have a you know a decent amount of of letters, um, you, and there's several in the book. Um, my next question was just, what do you, uh, which of those letters uh, really stood out to you? Is there a specific letter that um, surprised you the most, or was just interesting? Um, as the, the, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is the uh, written a, a little bit earlier, um, quite early in his military career. You know, in this period, and he's probably 22 maybe 23, and he's, you know, now an officer in the Virginia military, you know, trying to, taking part in this French and Indian War, trying to guard the frontier. And he writes that in his personal defense and the defense of his men for standing up for them, saying, you know, we're out here busting our asses in the wilderness, 
And, you know, we're doing, you know, we're cutting roads, we're dealing with Indians, we're, you know, exposed to all these hardships. Mm -hmm. And yet we're only getting paid half as much as these redcoat guys are who comes, you know, stalking around. <laughs> and this is not fair. This is not, you know, why should we be treated in a second class way? And he's really pissed about it. And this is really early going in his, in his as I say, 22, 23 years old. And, and that's a theme that will run throughout his life and come to a major head, as we all know, in about 1775. Um, this real mm -hmm. resentment against that kind of British, uh, that the put downs by the British. And he, and as I was saying earlier, he, he went through all sorts of great lengths to try to become a British royal officer. And he, they never accepted him. And he was very bitter about that. Huh. So, so that's one letter when he says that. Yeah, I um just thinking of that, it, it my mind's was suddenly transported to to Valley Forge and comparing him, you know, fighting for um just like equality and not being second class citizens and and getting you know better supplies, better equipment, better um treatment for the soldiers, and then fast forward to the Revolutionary War and him with you know watching his soldiers that are in terrible conditions with so little supplies, it makes that even more heartbreaking having exactly. the context of him always, you know, fighting for, um, the soldiers well-being. So, Oh, that is, that is incredible to have that little connection there. And, and the other letter that's, that's a real surprise. And, um, it, I think it's becoming a little bit more well-known now uh, this aspect of his early life was that he was absolutely as a young man, um, you know, this is before Martha entered the picture. He was absolutely obsessed with the, the wife of his close friend, George William Fairfax, who mm. was part of this big, you know, royal British family who was uh, owned a lot of land in Virginia. And George William was married to Sally Fairfax, who was very charming and, and well-read and um, I mean, just sounds like a delightful person, um, smart and George was clearly obsessed with her and infatuated with her. And, um, and there, there are, you know, a number of instances of that. What the most surprising one, and, and there's never any, you know, any evidence that anything physical happened. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's all kind of cloaked in speculation, but, but there, there, there are letters that make it very clear that there's a close relationship between those two. And the one that's most surprising to me is that, you know, I was saying that in, uh, so that would have been the fall of 1758 when uh, a second big body of, of uh, redcoats went into the Ohio wilderness to try to uh, take the French fort back in there to pry off the French um, under General Forbes. So this was the second big expedition. The first one got, you know, ambushed and slaughtered under Braddock. This was under General Forbes two, uh, three years later. And they... So in September of 1758, this huge expedition under General Forbes is starting to march into the wilderness, you know, ready for this epic battle with the French and Indians back in there. And George is part of it. He's, he's leading um, a, a part of the Virginia regiment. And on the way in, you know, probably thinking he, he could well die. He, in September, he writes a letter to Sally Fairfax and, and, and it's basically saying, in so many words, I've got to know one thing, and only you can tell me. And it's, it's, it's very clear from the context. He has to know whether or not she loves him. 
Oh. And, you know, she's been married for, for some years at this point, you know, like three or four or five years. And, and he, you know, he's a single guy, but he, and he's been a warrior, but he's also gone out to the, to Belvoir Manor where Sally and her husband live and the rest of the Fairfax family, this beautiful mansion that's right next door to Mount Vernon. And he spends a lot of time there and he spent a lot of time with her and, you know, telling stories for the whole group. And, you know, he's a hero to them. And, and he's the warrior. And so he writes this letter to Sally saying, I've got to know one thing, you know, and, and, and he, and he, he refers to, you know, these countless delightful moments he's had with her, you know, implying, you know, in her company. And, and he wants to know this one thing. So, he, and, and she writes him back after that. And she writes him this letter. It's not exactly a Dear John letter, but it just doesn't address the issue at all. <laughs> and then Washington, you know, they're starting to march into the wilderness. Now he writes her back again and says, you know, Madame, do you mistake my meaning? You know, how could I be more clear? Oh, and, man. And whether she responds or not, it's, it's hard to know because, you know, somebody pointed out to me a while ago, well, you know, Martha, when she burned all their correspondence, her correspondence between George and Martha might have burned any, you know, really incriminating letters between or, or you know, passionate letters between George oh. and, and Sally. So th there's not a, there's, as far as I recall, there's no, there's no uh, documentation of her response to that second letter when, when he's really wanting to know the answer to this question. Well, and then he, then they, this big expedition that he's on, the Forbes ex expedition goes into the wilderness and it turns out they don't end up having an epic battle with the French. The, the French actually flee before they, the uh, Redcoats and Washington's guys get to the fort, French fort. And th that's at the point when George, the French are gone. You know, the glory is kind of over. George immediately quits the leaves, says, oh, I got to go back to, to, uh, to Virginia to get, you know, coats, coats and blankets for my men who are going to be staying here for the winter. So he rides, you know, leaving his men out in the wilderness, rides back over the mountains. And, and that's in the, so the, the French fort falls in November. George rides out of the wilderness in December of 1758. He's written a letter to Sally Fairfax in September, as I recall, 1758. So then in January of 1759, this is like whatever it is, four or five months later, he marries Martha. So that's the time sequence that he's huh. he's wanting to know. You know, he's like infatuated with Sally in September and he's marrying Martha in January. And that letter. So that letter is really kind of a shock to people who don't kind of know the arc of this, of, this yeah. story of his of his love life. And and by all accounts, I mean, he and Martha had a it sounds like a wonderful marriage and a very close and warm one. And they actually did remain friends with Sally Fairfax and George William you know, and neighbors through for quite some years until the revolution broke out. Um, mm. uh, but it, you know, it's just, it's really a surprise to see this turnaround in, in George from this, this kind of obsession with Sally Fairfax to marriage to Martha. Yeah. Yeah. And man, there, there are so many little things uh, in this book that even, you know, as far as I am into it, that little things where you just are surprised where it's just like, wait, what? Wait, no, that's not George Washington. What? Of, and, and I love having those moments um, where you think you know a historical character, like you think you know this person, like you've been taught about them since, since elementary school, but then having that surprise of like, whoa, I had no idea. And so 
Um, I would just want to recommend anyone who's listening. Um, the book Young Washington uh, is is really really good. I can't wait to finish it. Um, are, are you allowed to talk about um, any future books you're doing? Do you have anything like in the pipeline? Um, uh, you'd like to maybe yeah, tease I've kind of gone or... back and forth about that. <laughs> okay, and my proposal is out there right now. But I'll, I will say it: it the book I'm proposing takes place in the same region in that Ohio wilderness, and it's it's in some ways a follow up to this story. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I'd love to, uh, have you back on the show and we can maybe talk about that when that gets, gets released or when you get deeper into research. But I just want to say thank you so much, Peter, for, for, uh, coming on and, uh, hearing my questions and answering them. Uh, this has been super, super fun. I've had a blast. Yeah, I had a blast too, Jake. And, um, yeah, I'd love to be on any time. And, and, uh, yeah, it's this other, I hope this book to be gets rolling. Uh, that'd be fun to kick that around too and get, and get your thoughts on it. So I'm always, I'm so interested in getting feedback from people when I, when I toss out these, these concepts for a book. Absolutely. I just want to say thank you one last time for, for being on Historium. Um, and hope you have a, a great, uh, rest of the year. Happy holidays. And again, thank you for being on the show. Okay. Thank you, Jake. Historium is written, well, in this case, hosted and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. The book Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father is available wherever books are sold, and I would highly recommend it. I'll be back in your feed with more forgotten stories from history real soon. As always, thanks for listening.